and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. In the late 18th, early 19th century, some German scholars had a huge revelation. They realized that Christianity was perhaps the most logical, reasonable, plain old, common sense comprehensible religion the world has ever known. That Christianity just made sense. It was in accord with all the laws of the physical world. It was uh, just intuitively right. It had a morality that just made sense. Everything about it was just clear. And if there was something in Christianity that wasn't clear, well, obviously it was just there by mistake, because the whole point of Christianity is being the world's most logical, commonsensical religion. So if there was something in Christianity that didn't make perfect 2 plus 2 equals 4 sense, it was probably added in by some later miscreant, either some Greek philosopher trying to get overly complex or maybe a disgruntled rabbi stuck it in there, but it definitely wasn't intrinsic to Christianity. Because Christianity was basically German rationalism as a religion, the religion of the kind of pure, logical Prussian mind. So certainly they had to deal with things like miracles, which on the surface are pretty hard to reconcile with the laws of physics and chemistry. But what was worse for them was the basic Christian definition of who Jesus is. This idea that Jesus is both fully human, totally one of us, totally our brother, and also completely God. That Jesus himself is God. If there has ever been a non-2 plus 2 equals 4 statement in the history of the world, this is it. How do you be 100% plus 100%? That makes no sense whatsoever. And so these scholars came up with a variety of theories about where this crazy idea could have come from, this 100% plus 100% idea. Some thought that maybe it was a kind of folktale meant to wow the pagans. Some thought maybe it came from the era in which Roman emperors were becoming Christians, and before they had a kind of divine mandate from the Roman gods to rule, and so they also needed a, a similar kind of divine mandate from the founder of their new religion, and he had to have the capacity to really give that kind of divine mandate, not only as a human leader, but as a god. But wherever this crazy idea came from, they were 100% sure it was not intrinsic to early Christianity, to the early church. The early church, these German scholars thought, believed first and foremost in morality. Jesus was a teacher of ethics. Jesus was the teacher of a great new moral system. And anything he might have said about God or his own divinity or whatever, that was really not the point. They didn't have any evidence for this idea, but they were sure that with time, with more texts being translated, with more archaeological discoveries, the evidence would come. They would find the early Christian texts, which talked about this really nice rabbi who had a lot of very interesting ideas, who eventually died, but that's okay because his ideas live on within each of us. But they never found them. And after now hundreds of years of searching for these texts where this kind of pure 
non-Jewish, non-philosophical, non-God-related core of Christianity resides, it doesn't seem to reside anywhere except in 19th century Germany. And it has to be said, there are some scholars who are still trying to keep the German rationalist dream alive. So if you read a book by someone like Bart Erdmann or John Dominic Crossan, they're still very much making this 19th century argument that Jesus never claimed to be God. He only claimed to be a rabbi with some new, interesting moral teachings. And some of his later followers just invented a lot of mystical mumbo-jumbo to give him a wider audience and make those moral teachings more accessible to other people. The problem is that this is really not reflected anywhere in the writings of the earliest Christians, and certainly not in the New Testament. And so what you have to do to make this argument is to say that those writings did exist, but they were all destroyed, or they were edited out of the New Testament. This is kind of a tricky argument to make, because you'd have to make the same argument uh, if you were going to claim that uh, Martians descended from Mars in the first century and taught Jesus everything and then went back up to Mars and that Jesus was really kind of teaching Martian wisdom. You'd have to say, well, the church was threatened by those documents talking about the role of the Martians, and so they were all destroyed. So rather than making claims based on documents which are hypothetical or definitely don't exist, um, I think it's much more helpful to actually just look at what the early Christian writings are. So looking at the New Testament and then looking at the earliest Christian writers. When we do this, we are kind of stepping out of the bounds of rationalism because early Christian writing is not terribly rational. Not in the sense that it's a bunch of crazy talk, but in the sense that it's God talk. It's trying to talk about the one whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, whose ways are higher than our ways, and trying to shrink him down into a little, tiny, human brain-sized box really doesn't work very well. So everything we have to go on really just comes not out of how we would do it if we were God, or what makes the most sense to us, but instead out of what the church calls revelation. What does God reveal to us about himself? What did God reveal to the earliest Christians about himself? What do we believe God tells us about who he is? And so in examining this question, who is Jesus, examining these claims about 100% divine, 100% human, and how we even make sense of that, we have to turn not to ourselves, but to him. So in the New Testament, Jesus uses this phrase to describe himself. He uses it over and over again. It's found 81 times in the New Testament, and in 80 of those uses, it's Jesus using it about himself. He calls himself, over and over again, the Son of Man. And in fact, the only time that anyone uses that phrase in the New Testament that's not Jesus, it's someone asking, Jesus, tell us, who is the Son of Man? This would be the like little tagline at the bottom of our Lord's business card. This was the kind of brief description that he gave of himself. So what does that mean? To us, it may not sound very impressive. I am the son of a man named Tony. Somebody else might be the daughter of some lady named Lucinda. Who's not the son of somebody or the daughter of somebody? But for a first century Jewish person, the son of man would have a very specific resonance. It would make you go immediately to the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. To him was given dominion, 
and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. This was a vision of the Messiah, but not just any old Messiah, not not a great king, not a great general, not just a leader of the people who would be ordained by God for a specific task, but the ultimate Messiah. It's a vision of God Almighty giving all of his own glory and power and dominion to someone else, to this Son of Man figure. And we know this was read by Jewish people in the first century as an account of the coming of the Messiah, because this is actually recorded in the Talmud. You have this discussion between Rabbi Alexandri and Rabbi Joshua, who talk about these two different depictions of the coming of the Messiah, the one in Daniel, in which he's coming on the clouds of heaven, and then one in Zechariah, where he comes lowly and riding on a donkey. There was also an important book of Jewish theology called First Enoch that's not part of the Bible, but talks about this Son of Man figure. It says, For from the beginning the Son of Man was hidden, and the Most High preserved him in the presence of his might and revealed him to the elect. There's this sense in First Enoch that the Son of Man is not only this great figure, but is actually co-eternal with God. From the beginning, he was hidden with God. So we hear Son of Man and we think, sure, okay, Son of Man. A first century Jewish person might hear Son of Man and think, this guy is claiming to be not just any old Messiah, but the Messiah, the Messiah of Messiahs, the one anointed by God to rule all creation, to have dominion over all things eternally. This term Jesus uses for himself as a depiction of someone who has all the power and might and glory and honor of God the Father, of the Almighty, yet who is bin Adan, who is literally a son of Adam, a descendant of Adam, a child of Adam. It's in itself this kind of crazy, interesting contradiction. So son of man is one of the chief terms used about Christ, that Christ uses about himself in the New Testament, but almost nobody else uses it about him. Instead, when people are having this deep moment of insight into who Jesus is, they use a very different term, which is son of God. So in Matthew, in the 14th chapter, the first time the apostles really get who Christ is, we're told, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are son of God. And this is also the term that the demons use for Christ. When they see him coming, they know who he is. And we're told in Mark, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, you are the son of God. In Matthew, suddenly they shouted, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? In Matthew, the devil comes to Christ and says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In Luke, demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them, and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Messiah. So the demons all see him as the Son of God. The apostles, whenever they have great moments of insight, call him the Son of God. And then, God the Father, any time he is discussing Christ, calls him the Son of God. So it is baptism in Matthew, and a voice said from heaven, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. 
In Mark, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. In Luke, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. At the transfiguration in Matthew, God the Father says, This is my Son, the Beloved. In Mark, This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to him. In Luke, This is my Son, my Chosen. Listen to him. And lastly, this title, Son of God, is the reason for the crucifixion. This was this great heretical statement that Christ made about himself, that others made about him, for which he was crucified. Because to be the Son of God, unless it were actually true, would be the most ludicrous, crazy, terrible blasphemy ever uttered in the whole history of blasphemies. And so at the crucifixion in Matthew, the crowd taunted him saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now when the centurion and those with him, who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, Truly this man was God's Son. In Mark, now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was God's Son. In Luke, all of them asked, Are you then the Son of God? He said to them, You say that I am. So if Jesus had just been going around being kind, being loving, being good, teaching this new morality, there would be nothing to crucify him for. Instead, it was this claim that he is the Son of God that so incensed the people that he had to die the most gruesome, horrible, public spectacle of a death that the ancient world could come up with. So what does this term mean? Well, as I said in a previous podcast, if you were just a regular old Greco-Roman, to be the son of a god, not really a big deal. All that means is that at some point, a god and a mortal had a baby together, and the baby is a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Maybe it has super strength, but regular size. Maybe it has giant size, but regular intelligence. It's a little bit godlike, a little bit human-like. Kind of like a mule. But for Judaism... God was not some guy that lived on a mountain and hurled lightning bolts, that had a big beard, that liked to drink wine and drank too much sometimes and had affairs and went shoplifting and did all this kind of stuff that the Greco-Roman gods did. Instead, God, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, was infinitely above and beyond the creation. He made himself present to the creation all the time, but he was so unlike the creation as to be utterly unimaginable. There are no statues of God in the temple. There are no pictures of God in the temple because God is utterly unlike the creation. So what would it mean for God, the creator, God Hashem, God Almighty, to have a son? So I have a daughter and a son, and our daughter and our son are just this kind of mixture of my DNA and my wife's DNA. So When our daughter was going to be born, we were thinking, you know, is she going to have dark brown hair like me, light brown hair like my wife, blue eyes like me, green eyes like my wife? We had all these questions about what she would be like, but there was never a time when we were like, do you think she'll be a horse? I mean, could she be a cabbage? Could she be a dog? There was 100% certainty her essence was going to be human essence and not dog essence, that she was going to be 100% our kind of kid. So to call someone the son of God and to not just mean like, we're all God's children or um, you're like a son to me, but to mean actually like the son of God, the sort of essence of God, God from God, the DNA of God. 
then you anything you would predicate about God, anything you could say about God the Creator, would have to be said about God the Son. So, in the same way that my wife and I couldn't have given birth to a horse, nothing short of God could share the essence of God. So if God the Father is omniscient, if he knows everything, then God the Son must be omniscient. If God the Father is omnipotent, if he has all power, then God the Son must be omnipotent. If God the Father is the source of all glory and love and peace and joy and goodness, then God the Son must also be the source of all glory and love and peace and joy and goodness. And so, this is what the apostles are saying. This is what the demons are saying. This is what God the Father is saying. And everybody looked at Jesus and they were like, this guy? Isn't he a carpenter? He's a rabbi? Like, what What are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense. If this is Christianity, that is phenomenally irrational. And so, this is where the early church starts with something that is so outlandish, something that is so incomprehensible, but this is the deposit of faith they've been given. This is the revelation which Jesus has given to the church about himself, that he is 100% absolutely one of us human, total son of Adam, and he is 100% absolutely the son of God. And so the next 300 years of thinking about Jesus are people trying to make sense of this. And it really happens in two ways. So sometimes when we think about heresy, we think that must be like people who think outside the box, people who are thinking creatively, people who are just kind of individuals doing their own thing in this kind of inspiring way. And ancient generations didn't understand that and they burned them at the stake. But for us, those are our great entrepreneurs. Those are the people who came up with like driverless cars and pilotless airplane. I don't know what they came up with, but those are the innovators in thought. Actually, not the case. So heresy, as defined by the church, is not a new or creative or clever way of thinking about God. There's actually a different term for that, which is theologumina. It's speculative, imaginative theology. And it's actually a good thing. Like, everyone should be engaging in theologumina. Heresy, instead, is reductionism. Heresy is taking the mystery of God and fitting it down into a little, tiny, human-sized box that we can all comprehend. It's taking the phenomenally mysterious, irrational religion of Christianity and making it make perfect, plain, old, common sense. And if you want to do this, the first place you have to look for common sense, the first little item that you need to straighten up, the first shelf that you really need to arrange is this idea that Jesus is 100% plus 100%. He must be either divine or human, or maybe some kind of like Greco-Roman 50-50, but he can't be 100% both. That doesn't make any sense. And so the earliest heresies of the church would say things like, okay, Jesus, we definitely know that he's divine. There is no question about that. Miracles, the resurrection, there's, it's clear that he's divine but we don't really know how human he was. What if he was kind of like 
a hologram? What if he was like the little projection of Princess Leia that gets played out of R2-D2? Obi-Wan, we are only hope. What if he was just kind of like this messenger from the spiritual realm who took kind of the form of a human, but was never actually really human? Because that we could wrap our brains around. That would actually kind of make sense to us. So let's start a new branch of Christianity called docetism. And we docetists, we believe that Jesus was fully divine, no problems there, but the human part, kind of like uh, he tried to relate to us as a human, he tried to appear as a human. It would be sort of like if I wanted to make friends with bears and I put on a bear costume and I went and hung out in the woods and I tried to catch salmon with my hands, it would be that kind of being a bear. He's not actually human. And then on the other side, you have people who say, look, he was a great rabbi, a great teacher, he was incredibly kind, he was really smart, top of his class in every class. He was so good that it's almost like he was the Son of God. You know, if, if you met the Son of God, he couldn't have been smarter or kinder than this guy was. So Son of God, that's kind of like a metaphor. When the demons exclaim, what have you to do with us, Son of God? They mean sort of like, what have you to do with us? You're the bee's knees. We know that you're not actually the knee of a little tiny insect, but it's, it's a metaphor we use about you to tell you how fantastic you are. When the apostles are bowing down and saying, you are the son of God, what they really mean is, you are so impressive that it's like we're standing right before the son of God. And you have still others in the late first, early second century who say, okay, so he was just born as a regular guy, 100% human, normal, run-of-the-mill guy, but he did such a good job as a person. He was so thoughtful, so wise, so kind. He got so many celestial brownie points that God was just like, honestly, you were the best creature I've ever made. I'm going to adopt you. I, I like you so much. It's sort of like if you have uh, some Dickensian situation in which you have an orphan working in a wood shop, and the master of the wood shop is like, oh, little Johnny, you know, you work so well, you build so many excellent boot jacks per hour, I'm just going to adopt you. You can move into the big house with me and my wife, and we'll raise you like one of our own. And so at the baptism of Christ, they said, God was like, this is my recognition that you are totally fantastic, and I am adopting you as my son. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and he goes through a little bit of a change. His driver's license, the last name change, is from son of Joseph to son of God, and he is now officially adopted as the son of God. And so the adoptionist heresy is born. And all of these make total sense. You can wrap your brain around them in a way that you just can't, around 100% and 100% fully divine and fully human. But the church kept coming back to all of these groups and saying, no, Christianity is not about rationalism. It's not about scaling down God to fit within the human intellect. Instead, it's about opening the human intellect to God. It's not about making God fit our standards. It's about reevaluating our standards so that we can stand before him, allowing ourselves to be changed by him. For the church, the nature of Christ was, at its core, mystery. And mystery in Greek, it doesn't mean a kind of whodunit, like nobody knows the answer yet, but at some point, some clever person is going to find out. Nor does it mean an intractable problem that you're never going to get to the bottom of, so you may as well just stop thinking about it. It's neither mystery you got to solve it, nor mystery 
just ignore it. It's none of your business. Instead, a mystery is something, the more you learn about it, the more complex it grows before your eyes. The deeper you get into it, the more mind-boggling and amazing it becomes. So the church would never say, it's a mystery, figure it out, nor would the church ever say, it's not for you to think about. That's a mystery, leave that alone. Instead, the church would say, it's a mystery, spend your life growing into that mystery, contemplating that mystery, wrestling with that mystery. And so many of the great early Christian writers spent their whole lives thinking about what this meant. What is it to say that Jesus is fully God and fully human? So you have writers thinking about episodes like like the calming of the wind on the Sea of Galilee. Christ stands up in the boat, he rebukes the wind, and the wind stops. And they would ask interesting questions like, obviously everything he does is this um, collaboration of human and divine nature, but was that act more human or more divine? On the surface, it might seem like some purely divine act, like a, a kind of power that only God would have, but then if you think about it, what did Adam and Eve have over nature? We're told in Genesis they had dominion over nature. They had this kind of rulership over nature. So if Christ is fully human, and we are actually not fully human, we, are, we have a fallen humanity, a diminished humanity, but if in Christ we see the fullness of humanity, maybe that rebuking the wind and the wind listening is actually an act of his human nature even more than his divine nature. Maybe Christ wants to walk upon the water, and he tells the water, be walkable, and so the water obeys. Maybe Christ wants to be a few fish, a few loaves of bread to become thousands and thousands of fish and thousands and thousands of loaves of bread, and they obey. In the same way, another great thinker of the church said, why is it that Christ cries at the tomb of Lazarus. Why, when his friend is dying, he receives a letter from his sister saying, your friend who you love is dying, and Jesus says, it's not a big deal, he's going to be fine, and just stays in the town where he is. And then eventually he goes to Bethany, and he's walking to Bethany, and one of Lazarus's sisters sees him from afar, she runs out to him, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says, don't worry about it, he's going to be fine, this is all going to be over in a couple hours. And then he gets to the tomb of Lazarus, and he bursts into tears. And one early writer of the church said, on the surface, this seems like a human response, and of course everything is a com- combination of divinity and humanity in this one person, but what if this is less a human crying out of sadness for the loss of a friend, since he knows that he's going to resurrect him any minute, as he's been telling everybody for the past couple of days, and instead is a response of God. Because God cries, God feels sorrow, God is horrified every time he encounters death. Because death is the creation turning against God, is the creation rebelling against God, is the creation refusing to be the creation of God, refusing to do the will of God. So these are examples of the church saying not, don't think about this mystery, it's not for you, it's not your place, but instead, spend all your life thinking about this mystery, spend all your life wrestling with this mystery, growing into this mystery, loving and cherishing this mystery of Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully human, fully one of us, our brother, our friend, and our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, 
our God. And this is the early church understanding of who Jesus is, fully God, fully human. On our next episode, we'll step away from these biblical texts we've been looking at and dive into some of what the earliest Christian writings say about who Jesus is, how they wrestle with that mystery, how they describe the person of Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for being with me for the history of Christianity. I'll see you next time.